Well, my name is Graham. Some of you probably know that. Um, before we start, just let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we do ask, Lord, that as we uh, look at it and think about it this evening, that your Holy Spirit would guide our thoughts, Lord, that we might uh, learn from that word and live lives that are more worthy of the name of Jesus. If we ask that in his name. Amen. Well, Bible reading is important, but how do we read the Bible? Well, uh, most books you start at the beginning. And we can start at the very beginning, but we'd soon get bogged down trying to understand the details that we find in Exodus and Leviticus. So perhaps we could, we could take one book at a time, but which one? The New Testament is probably easier, we could start there, but then we sort of miss out on what's gone on before. Uh, the Old Testament has very interesting stories, um, about, but they're about Israel. So, for instance, like David and Goliath. So how does that relate to us? How do they relate to the other stories? Um, we know that every word is inspired by God. And so some years ago, it was very common to have what they would call a promise box. I don't know if you know what a promise box is, but um, you have a box full of promises that come from the scripture and you can just select one out and you can read that and that's a great promise. Um, but how do we know what that promise means without looking at it in its context, in what goes around it? Why do we think that the promises given to Abraham, to Israel, or to the apostles actually relate to us? So, for instance, in John 16, verse 13, we could say, we could read there that the Holy Spirit would, will guide you into all truth. But that's directed to the apostles. And that's the basis of our trust in the New Testament, that they were guided uh, into truth by the Holy Spirit. It's not talking to us. Uh, John Chapman made, uh, uh, used, used to use a, a system, or an, an, an example actually, uh, called the open and plonk method. I don't know if you've ever heard about that one before, but he would say uh, this particular gentleman, believing that the Bible was inspired, opened up his Bible, landed on uh, Matthew 27 verse 5, and put his finger down and it said, and Jesus went and hanged himself. Oh, that's not very devotional. Uh, let's try again. So he turned over, got to Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 28, go there and do likewise. Uh, it's getting worse. So let's get rid of that one. We'll go on to John and see what John's got to say. And there he opens up in John 13, what you're going to do, do quickly. Um, very dangerous to use that method of Bible reading. In fact, uh, any small portions can be quite dangerous. You can, you can actually go to Psalm 14 and sort of, if you just take a little bit out, you can say, there it, there it says, there is no God. Now, Psalm 14 says that, repeats it later on in the Psalms as well. But if you look at its context, a little bit before and a little bit after and so forth, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, which changes the message slightly. So the Bible, we do know, has one overall author. That's the Holy Spirit. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, that the, the writers of the Old Testament were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit in their prophesying. So because of that, we can expect an overall structure in the Bible. And so we can be guided by the summary of Jesus' message in Mark, in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, where uh, Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. 
So we take the kingdom of God then as the basis of our structure. So the Bible's structure or storyline actually shows how God's revelation of his, of his rule, his sovereign rule, his kingdom, progresses from creation to fall and to the new creation with its focus on Christ, who is the content of all God's promises. We need to understand that, that all God's promises are pointing towards Jesus. Uh, Paul reminds us of that in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, for he says that all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And Jesus himself, when talking to the two, to the uh, three apostles on the, sorry, three disciples on the way to Emmaus, said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. So this will help us study the 66 books as a unity while we maintain the diversity and understand how the New Testament relates to the Old Testament which was actually given to Israel, not to us, and how to treat the Old Testament as Christian scripture with a message for us, as Paul reminds the Corinthians. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So the simplest structure we have is, is three stages with a prologue and an epilogue, which you have in your handout. So with the prologue, now in creation... God sets up his kingdom on earth. He has a people for his own possession in a place that he's prepared for them and they will live under his rule. So Adam and Eve are his people in the place prepared for them by God and to whom he gives everything, including dominion over the rest of creation. Now their part is to have fellowship with God, to trust him and obey him. And so there is one command given and that is that they're not to touch, or not to eat rather, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good, of good and evil. If they do, they will die. Um, so that's the, the only thing they have to obey. Not very difficult. Um, and Adam is actually called God's son. Not in Genesis, but in Luke chapter 3 at the end of the genealogy. So then Satan, we're not told how Satan comes to know to be, but Satan in the form of the serpent reverses the order of creation and works on Eve's emotions to divert the trust of humanity to himself. In other words, instead of obeying God, they will obey him, and he will then become their ruler. And so in Genesis 3, verses 5 and 6, we read, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat of the fruit of that tree, and you'll be like God. You will know both good and evil, and the woman was convinced, because she saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. So it really could be describing our Western society, couldn't it? Where freedom to us is being able to do what you want to do. Uh, we all want to do what we want to do, and we don't want anyone interfering or telling us what we can't do. Uh, that's our society. But the rebellion of Adam and Eve, we don't have to go, time to go right into all that, but the rebellion of Adam and Eve is actually the root of, all our, root of all our problems today. And death enters as promised by God. Now, Adam and Eve didn't fall over dead, but they were put to death at that time. I don't know if you ever go out, you can take a leaf from a tree. You take the leaf from a tree, compare it to the other leaves, and it looks just the same. Just as crisp, looks just as fresh and everything, but it's been cut off from its source of life. And if you go back a couple of weeks later, you'll find 
that, that, see, that leaf that you took off has actually withered and gone. And that's what happened to Adam and Eve. So, but God doesn't leave things there. It's not as if now, okay, Satan has won, he's now the ruler of this world and he will be forever and ever. No, even Jesus called him the ruler of this world, but it won't be forever and ever. That fallen state of affairs will be corrected. And so in Genesis 3.15, I will cause hostility between you, that is the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and that's he, that is the seed of the woman, will strike your head and you will strike his heel. But in the meantime, sin increases, even after the flood. And so God's first steps to regain his kingdom that has been usurped by Satan is the calling of Abraham. So he calls Abram or Abram and Abraham uh, and gives him some promises. So we move then into an historical kingdom. The kingdom is now developed in history, an actual kingdom. And that uh, takes us from Abraham through to Solomon to get this historical experience of God's kingdom. Now, Abraham was a pagan when he was called. He actually worshipped the moon god. And so he is told in Genesis 12 to go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. And all the families on earth will be blessed through you. So there's a promise then of land, of people and of blessing. Blessing basically means fellowship with God under his rule. It doesn't mean to say you're going to have four Mercedes Benz and a Rolls Royce in your garage. Uh, or live in a 12-bedroom home or anything like that. That's, wealth is not um, blessing. Jesus was blessed and he didn't have anywhere to put his head. So it basically means fellowship with God. And uh, that will be extended to all the nations as well because all the families on earth will be blessed through you. That is, have a relationship with God. So the history of Abram's descendants, that's the nation of Israel, gives us all the concepts that we need to be able to understand what God's kingdom is all about. Um, and so very briefly, they were enslaved in Egypt as a numerous people. They, that was fulfilled. And actually, they are called God's son. That's an, we need to keep that in mind because Jesus ends up being God's son. But they are called God's son. In Exodus 4, the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, the message that Moses has to take to Pharaoh. And from this enslavement, God liberates or redeems them by mighty acts of judgment and salvation. That is, they're, they're liberated or freed from bondage, uh, and that is called an exodus. So they are, they are bought and li liberated and brought to the place or the land that God has prepared for them. That's the land of Canaan. And that's a holy land because it belongs to God, and he has placed his name there. And so there's a promise of blessing or fellowship with God in that place. In other words, it's a return to what we found in the Garden of Eden. So God's promises and the people's responses are called a covenant. That is an agreement, and that's ratified in Exodus 24, which depends on the trust and obedience of the people of God uh, that he has chosen to be his own possession. But again, with an extension to other nations, in Exodus 19, it says there that uh, if Israel will obey him, and keep his covenant, they will be God's own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, because all the earth belongs to him, and they will be a kingdom of priests, that is, that they will represent God to the nations, uh, and uh, they will be his holy nation. But as the people are still sinful, 
a series of sacrifices are given to enable them to approach a holy God. That especially the big day of atonement or the day of uh, appeasing God's wrath is found in Leviticus 16. But we won't go into that either, we haven't got time. So to enable these people to enter the land, God moves the inhabitants out by sending metaphorical hornets in Exodus 23. God doesn't send them out against their will, he just makes them willing to go. Uh, who wouldn't be willing to go if you've got a pack of hornets behind you? Um, and so God is not unfair in that, uh, but it's all due to the sin of the inhabitants reaching its completion. You see, we often think that uh, we sort of came from nothing and uh, so we, we gradually sort of um, lived in caves and, you know, the men dragged their wives out behind the hair and all this sort of thing and uh, had a club in their hand. And, but no, as the Bible says, mankind began with the knowledge of God and rejected it, turned aside from that. And so sin increased and now the sin of the inhabitants of Canaan has reached a point where God says, enough. Right, you're out. This is my land and to live in that land you must be holy as well. So you will be moved out and I will send hornets to make you want to go and to go out. Um, and so once in the land, the concept of a king or a leader is introduced. Now that's a sinful request by the people of Israel because they are rejecting God as their king and they want to be the same as the other people, as the other nations. That's why they want a king. But God grants that request because that's his particular point as well. And so the anointed king that results, or Christ, that's what the word Christ means, is anointed king, is God's son. And so you've had Adam is God's son, Israel is God's firstborn son, and now the king who represents the nation, he will be called God's son in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I will be his father, he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. But he represents the people, so when he sins, the nation suffers. So the first king that's uh, there is Saul. Now he's the sort of king that they want, and that's a dead end. But then God chooses a man. A man after God's heart means that God chose him. That's what God wanted this time, as were Abraham and Moses. And so David then is chosen as God's anointed king, as his Christ or Messiah. And he defeats all God's enemies and brings peace to the land. And Jerusalem, the city of David, becomes the city of God. And then his son Solomon takes over and he reigns in peace. He builds the temple to replace the tabernacle which was used in the, in the, in the wandering from, from Egypt uh, up to the promised land. Uh, the temple of the tabernacle and the temple which both symbolised the presence of God dwelling among his people. And so God's promises to Abraham and Israel have now been historically fulfilled. We now have God's people in a place that God has prepared for them, the land of Canaan, living in peace under his rule exercised by his Messiah, his Christ, his anointed king. And so we read then in 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, for he, that is Solomon, had dominion over all the region, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. And so the nations were also benefiting from uh, this, this rule, from his rule. 
the Queen of Sheba came and she was blessed by her relationship with, uh, with Solomon. But, and there's a big but, we now reach the decline and prophetic reflections. Now, from Solomon then to Malachi, we have a problem, and that is that sin has not been finally dealt with. Those anointed kings, David and Solomon, proved completely unfit to be the king in God's holy kingdom. David, with a little bit of a hiccup there, you know, adultery and murder in 2 Samuel 11. Solomon, with his many wives and concubines, allowed to bring foreign gods into the land in 1 Kings 11. And the descendants were usually worse. And the kingdom in its earthly expression then goes into decline. Uh, it goes from reaching that, that great peace, the fulfilment of the promises to Abraham, and so down it, it heads, it goes south. Um, and it quickly splits into two. So your one people of God become two with a northern kingdom of Israel in the, and, and then a southern kingdom of Judah. Now the earlier prophets, Elijah and Elisha, which was a question we had before, they applied the covenant to the kings of their day in an effort to avoid the curse and the judgment of God that was explained in Deuteronomy 28. Uh, it takes a long read, but um, not a very pleasant one. But ultimately the judgment of God falls on them and both north and south nations are expelled from the land as threatened by that uh, Deuteronomy 28. So it's a holy land. The people now are sinful. They, are not, they fail to be holy, and so they also will be kicked out. And so in Deuteronomy 28, we read, Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God, you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And so Israel, the northern kingdom, was exiled by the, the nation of Assyria in 722 BC, and Judah, the south nation, by Babylonia from 597 to 586. So then the later prophets, that's Isaiah and Jeremiah, the ones we have in our Bible, they reflect on the consequences of the people's rebellion. They know that judgment is certain. So will God's promises still stand or will it, is it all finished? Well, the earthly kingdom was only a temporary fulfilment of the promises of God. The prophet's message, the writing prophets, is it will all occur again on a much greater, even supernatural scale, but described in terms of their experience of the earthly kingdom. So it's going to be a much greater kingdom, but with the same concepts. And they will use their experience um, to sort of an exaggeration of their experience uh, to, to try and express what they're, what they're getting at, this supernatural kingdom that's going to come. It's where I get my favourite verse from. It's Isaiah 20, uh, 17, verse 20. He who dies at 100 will be considered but a mere youth. So I'm still young. Um, but you see how they were exaggerating, right? To, to make their point. Uh, but it's all based on the concepts of the earthly kingdom. There'll be a new creation, Isaiah 65, a new heaven and a new earth. There'll be a new exodus, a liberation or redemption from slavery in Isaiah 40, but this time from sin, not from Egypt. There'll be a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, where God will make a new covenant, not like the one they broke, uh, but this time he will put his law within them. He will write it on their hearts and, and he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And they will all know him from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. 
So God is saying that forgiveness will be part of this new covenant. There will be a new king in Isaiah 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so you see that the new king uh, where human kings have failed, David and Solomon were our best possibilities, they both failed, but now then the, the anointed king will be God himself. Um, he'll be called Mighty God and Everlasting Father. So a divine Messiah is the best possible uh, human kings failed. There'll be a new temple in Ezekiel 40 to 48. We won't read all that, but there'll, there'll be a new temple. There'll be a new Jerusalem, um, that city of God. But the, the old Jerusalem was a sinful city. The new Jerusalem is a holy city. Uh, Israel will only be a faithful remnant of the nation. After judgment, only a stump remains in, in uh, Isaiah 6. And so we could go on. There are more concepts as well. But the Old Testament ends with the promises unfulfilled. The historical return from exile under Ezra and Nehemiah was not a fulfilment. It was only a pale shadow of the promises. As Nehemiah makes the, the, the exclamation in, the, in uh, Nehemiah 9, he says, we're slaves in our own land. This is not the supernatural fulfilment. This is not what God had promised. Uh, there's more to come. But then there's 400 years of silence after Malachi, the last one in the Old Testament. And so we come then, finally, after that 400 years, to the kingdom is fulfilled in Jesus. That's the New Testament, where all the concepts that we've looked at relate to Christ. All the promises of God are pointing to Jesus. Jesus is, yes, that is the promise. And so Jesus, then, is the true Israel. He's the true Son of God. Right? Adam failed. Israel failed. The kings, the anointed kings failed. Now comes God's beloved son. And so we read then in two, Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, that Joseph and Mary took their son, that is Jesus, to Egypt until the death of Herod to fulfill Hosea, Hosea's promise in chapter 11, verse 1, where Hosea says, Out of Egypt I called my son. But Hosea's talking about the nation Israel. Matthew's talking about Jesus because Jesus is the fulfilment of that nation. He's the only true Israelite. All the promises of God are fulfilled in him. And so the fulfilment is not a literal one, but it's typological. It's like shadow to reality. Right? The Old Testament was the shadow. The New Testament is the reality in Jesus. And uh, also in John chapter 1, we find that Jesus is the king and the nation of Israel. He's the new Jacob, the new Israel. Um, and so... Adam and uh, the other anointed kings and so forth, they all failed. And God's people now are those who are in Christ. So there's a new Jerusalem as well in Hebrews 12. We Jews have come to the new holy Jerusalem, to Jesus. There is a new temple, uh, the temple uh, in John 1. Uh, the word tabernacled among us. In other words, he came down and set his tabernacle there as a tabernacle in the Old Testament. Um, and Jesus said in chapter 2 of John, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, talking about his own body. The temple was the symbol of God's presence with his people and Jesus was God in the presence of his people. He is Emmanuel, God with us. There is a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is found in Christ, he is a new creation because Jesus is the new creation. If we're in him, we also are part of that new creation. 
Uh, he is the new king. Christ is the anointed king. That's what he's, uh, when we refer to him as Christ, that's what we're saying. He's the king in God's kingdom, which is also his, as Ephesians 5 refers to the kingdom of Christ and of God. There is a new covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, says Jesus in Matthew 26, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, which was promised by Isaiah in Jeremiah 30, by Jeremiah rather in chapter 31. There's a new exodus, right? Christ is our Passover, uh, says Paul uh, to the Corinthians, the lamb that was sacrificed at the exodus from Egypt. Or as Luke says, that Jesus had to go to Jerusalem to fulfill his exodus there. And so finally, all the promises and plans of God uh, are determined actually before creation. This is not God sort of saying, what, am, what on earth am I going to do uh, when Satan comes and, and usurps his kingdom in, in, in Genesis 3? Uh, God had it all set out before the foundation of the world to bring all things together in Christ. And so we could read then Ephesians 1 verses 3 and 4 that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. And his ultimate plan, we read in verse 9, this is God's plan. At the right time, he will bring everything uh, under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. So where does that leave us? We look to the epilogue or the consummation in the book of Revelation. If all God's promises to Israel are fulfilled in Christ, then we participate in them by being in Christ, living the life that Christ lived. That's God's purpose for us, that we be conformed to the image of Jesus. So in Christ, we join the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And so the believers from the nation are joined to the saints of Israel. From the 144,000 of the 12 tribes squared in, in uh, Revelation 7, um, John sees a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They wore clothes, they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. So that is a glorious day that we look forward to, joining uh, the new Jerusalem. It's a return to Eden, where God's people will be in the place prepared by God under his rule or kingship. In uh, Revelation 22, then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the and of the Lamb. That's talking back to Ezekiel 40 to 48. It flowed down the centre of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for, med for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything. For the throne of God and the Lamb will be there and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun for the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. So all we need for life and godliness 
comes from the knowledge of God. That's what 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. That comes from the revelation that God made of himself, which we have in his word, uh, in the living word, Jesus, and the written word, Scripture. So we, mu we must make sure that we understand it correctly by reading it with understanding in the way he has revealed himself to us. And so that's why we're offering the PTC course from creation to new creation. That's what Vaughan Roberts is about in his uh, God's Big Picture as well. It's about how does the Bible hang together? What is the overlying story? And so how do we study the Bible? Uh, we've only looked at an, an abridgment of, a, of a, an abridged version tonight. There's a whole lot of, to go into, but very briefly we could say we fit the passage in its historical context and find out what it meant then. Then we look for any future movements suggested by the structure. Where are we? Are we in the historical kingdom, in the prophets, in the fulfilment with Jesus? Um, is there more to come? Where do we look? Where do we go for that? And so what does it mean for us today and how should we respond in order to become more like Christ? Shall we pray? Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us. And we ask, Lord, that as we look into your word, we might find Jesus and that your Holy Spirit might convict us of our sin, that we might find life in him that we might be numbered among all your people on that great day when Jesus returns. For we ask this in his name. Amen.